Hi, I'm Monica. And I'm Emma. Welcome to Fanfare, in which cultural luminaries invite their dream guests to dinner. Before we get into the show, can we make a brief detour into my closet? Always. Well, we've talked about this before, Emma, but fashion is like cooking. What? No. Well, yes, it all comes down to the ingredients. Oh. Yeah. When your essentials are solid, you don't have to own a zillion things. Nor should we aspire to, for obvious reasons. You don't need to have both sweet and hot paprika? Is that what you're trying to tell me? I don't think you do. And that's why I'm so excited that our sponsor for season three is Cezanne, a sustainable Parisian brand that nails the essentials. And this at a surprisingly accessible price point, given their commitments to quality and to eco-friendly business practices. Mm, they're a B Corp, aren't they? They are. Visit sezane.com to see what I mean. Mother, I wish you'd give up this sort of thing. What exactly do you mean by this sort of thing, Sorrel? You know perfectly well what I mean. Are you attempting to criticize me? I should have thought that you'd be above encouraging silly, callow young men who are infatuated by your name. That may be true, but I shall allow nobody but myself to say it. I hoped you'd grow up a good daughter to me, not a critical aunt. It's so terribly cheap. Cheap? Nonsense. What about your diplomatist? Surely that's a little different, dear. Mother, darling, don't you see it? It's awfully undignified for you to go flaunting about with young men. I don't flaunt about. I never have. I've been morally an extremely nice woman all my life, more or less. And if dabbling gives me pleasure, I don't see why I shouldn't dabble. But it oughtn't to give you pleasure anymore. You know, Sorrel, you grow more damnably feminine every day. I wish I'd brought you up differently. I'm proud of being feminine. Oh, you're a darling and I adore you and you're very pretty and I'm madly jealous of you. Oh, are you really? How lovely. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. <gasps> and scene. That was an excerpt from Hay Fever, a light comedy in three acts by Noel Coward, which opened at the Ambassador's Theatre in London in 1925, and, like so much of Coward's work, has continued to be staged and adapted for the screen ever since. What do you think, Em? Would Noel have cast us? Hmm, I think he might have said we needed a wisp more practice. Certainly we would not have passed muster with his mother. According to this wonderful documentary I've just watched about him, when he was starting out as a child actor in the early 1900s, his dear mother, with whom he remained very close his whole life, would give him hell if he wasn't good enough. We are very excited because the filmmaker who created this documentary, of which Emma speaks, Barnaby Thompson, is joining us shortly. And as you may have guessed, he's bringing Noel Coward to dinner. Barnaby Thompson is a British film producer and director who's made over 30 films. Just a few of the films he's produced include Wayne's World, Coneheads, Tommy Boy, Spice World, An Ideal Husband, The Importance of Being Earnest, The St. Trinian's Films, which he also directed, and Dorian Gray. Soon after graduating from Oxford, he moved to the States to begin making movies with Lorne Michaels in New York and L.A., returning to England in 1996 to co-found Fragile Films, which has become one of the UK's leading independent production companies. Barnaby has been nominated for an Oscar and a BAFTA and has also produced and directed a number of award-winning documentaries. His latest is Mad About the Boy, 
The Noel Coward Story, which he wrote, directed, and produced. The fascinating and poignant documentary includes never-before-seen archival footage from throughout Coward's life. It is voiced by Rupert Everett, who plays Noel's voice, and Alan Cummings, who narrates, and it will be released in cinemas across the UK and Ireland on June 2nd. Barnaby will be joining us from London shortly. Um, quick question. Shouldn't it be Sir Noel Coward because he was knighted? Yes, you're right. It was important that finally in 1969, a mere four years before his death, he was knighted for his contributions to British culture, which was not at all a slam dunk, despite the fact that he was, at the height of his career, the best paid writer in the world, apparently, and his plays were immensely popular throughout the 20th century. He wasn't given the recognition that somebody at that kind of zenith of fame and zeitgeist capturing would normally receive, in part, I believe, because of his homosexuality. Sir it is, then. Sir it is. Sir Noel Coward was an English actor, playwright, songwriter, singer, and movie maker who was born on the cusp of the 20th century in December 1899 and became one of the most famous and well-loved voices of his generation, dubbed the quintessential Englishman before his death in March 1973. He was a multi-talented, prolific, and largely self-taught writer, composer, and performer known for his witty and sophisticated plays, musicals, and songs, which were extremely popular in the early and mid-20th century. He was gay at a time when homosexuality was illegal in the UK. Coward sexuality was not a secret. He was committed to living life on his own terms and is remembered as an important trailblazer for LGBT rights and representation in the arts. Some of his plays include Private Lives, Blythe Spirit, which was actually made into a Netflix movie as recently as 2021, I believe, Hay Fever, from which we just did a little scene, and Design for Living the latter of which revolves around a relationship between two men and a woman and is said to be an early exploration of same-sex romance, among many, many other plays. And in addition to his work in the theatre, Coward acted in films and on television and was a prolific songwriter with hits such as Mad Dogs and Englishmen and I'll See You Again. Coward was known for his quick wit, although he famously quipped, wit ought to be a glorious treat like caviar, never spread it about like a marmalade. He was at the center of a fascinating social world and counted among his friends Laurence Olivier, Marlene Dietrich, Agatha Christie, whose novel And Then There Were None, he adapted for the screen, and Ian Fleming, his neighbor in Jamaica where he spent a good portion of the latter part of his life and where he died in 1973. Coward was awarded a knighthood in 1969 for his contributions to British culture. Tropical climes for certain times of day when all the citizens retire to Barnaby, welcome. Very happy to be here. I'm going to jump right in with where did it all begin between you and Noel? So I first came across Noel Coward at school, I suppose, and uh, going to see productions of his plays, which always seemed rather old fashioned and not really, they didn't really connect with them. I connected with him as a person probably going to Jamaica because I've been going to Jamaica for most of my adult life and his house, as you know, is one of the more extraordinary places in the world. It's perched on top of the hill and looks very romantically over the Caribbean Sea and it sort of captured my imagination as a place to be. I probably really connected with his work in 2008 when I made a film of his play Easy Virtue which starred Colin Firth and uh, Chris and Scott Thomas and Jessica Biel 
And that's when I really understood how clever and how modern uh, he really was. Well, we loved your documentary. And for me, it really allowed me to connect with Noel for the first time. And I was wondering at what point did you decide, I'm going to make a documentary about him? Well, some friends approached me with the idea of they got the rights to make a documentary about him um, from the Nolcad estate and they approached me to produce it, and which I said yes to. And then the more I looked for directors to do it, the more I realised that actually I didn't want any of them to say yes. I wanted to do it myself. So it was a sort of slow realisation that I needed to get back to my roots. I started off life making documentaries and I haven't made one for probably 30 years. And was it an enjoyable experience? Yeah, it was fantastic. It was fantastic for lots of reasons. I mean, documentaries were my first love and I took a circuitous route where I ended up in Hollywood somewhat uh, to my own surprise. And so to get back to them after all this time was a delight. They're sort of wallowing in archive material and discovering things. And it's it's almost, it's got a kind of academic edge to it. Sort of, you're learning about your subject as you are pursuing it. Whereas with a movie, you know, it's, you're sort of, you're, you're attacking it with a certainty. So it's a kind of, it's a great learning experience. And also just to spend time with him and spend time with the 20th century was kind of fantastic. Mm. I want to ask you about the footage, but first, Wikipedia says that after university, you went to Afghanistan and Pakistan with a book about how to make a film, and you came back with a ton of footage and sold a documentary to Channel 4. Can you tell me just a little bit, tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So I was in my last year at university, and I I can't remember how it happened, but, you know, as it were, late one night, I cooked up the idea with two friends of making a documentary in Afghanistan and Pakistan. It was the time when the Russian, Russia had invaded Afghanistan. There were three and a half million Afghan refugees in Pakistan. I can't, I mean, it's impossible to know what one thinks when one is 20 or 21, but you clearly don't think, well, that's scary, or I can't do that, or I don't know anything. So we just basically cooked up this idea. We raised a couple of thousand pounds. We found we borrowed a camera, a camera from ABC, and we uh, found an Afghan cameraman who was prepared to come with us for expenses. And we we got a letter from a f- famous cricket player, a Pakistani cricket player, and we set off with uh, this book, which was called How to Make a Film by Lenny Lipton. And we went to Pakistan, and we went to we spent about two months wandering around the the sort of the borders of Pakistan and Afghanistan in what's called the tribal territories, which are probably the most wildest and most dangerous places imaginable, you know, not knowing anything. And we we made a film which we managed to sell, came back and we sold to Channel 4 here in the UK. Wow. What a way to get a start. That's very, very cool. So I'd love to hear about the footage, the Noel Coward footage. Where did it come from and what surprised you in it? Well, the amazing thing in it is his home movies. So he was an early adopter of a home movie camera and he started filming, you know, in his 20s. So there, we knew there was some, but we discovered more in uh, the sort of the archive at sort of the, at the bottom of boxes. There were these undeveloped rolls of film. And he was, I mean, you've seen the film. He, I mean, some of the footage is so good, you can't believe it's 
home movie footage. Yeah, I was really wondering about that the whole time. I was looking forward to asking you. You sort of think, did he know there was a documentary that was going to be made about him? Yeah, it's incredible. You know, and he, I mean, the footage of New York is just, it looks like it's done professionally. And he also, he traveled. I and mean, this is a man that wrote 60 plays, wrote 500 songs, but he still found time to travel all over the world. I mean, he traveled to the Far East, he took China, Mongolia, uh, Russia, you know, all around Europe, all through North America and South America. And he took his camera with him wherever he went. So we have extraordinary footage by him. So that was the thing to me that I, you know, I knew about some of it, but I had no idea the extent or the quality of it. And so that was the thing that really opened it up in a way that was completely surprising. I'm mad about the boy. And I know it's stupid to be mad about the boy. I'm so ashamed of it, but must admit the sleepless nights I've had. So let's talk a bit more about Coward himself. As you explain in the documentary, he was famous for being decadent and sophisticated and all silk dressing gowns and clipped accent. When in fact, he was actually born into a family of very limited means. He had a stutter as a child as well. And his mother ran a boarding house in Pimlico where his father contented himself with making model ships, as Coward puts uh, it himself in your film. So he became a child actor in part to free his mother from her life of hard work that she seemed to be heading for. Did people know as he was rising to fame and beginning to really embody this aspirational type of glamour and nonchalance that is very much sort of part of the British upper class, I'd say, uh, where he had really come from. And do you think that it would have affected his popularity if they had? Well, it was one of the things, it was the thing that surprised me most when I was doing the research for the film was that he'd grown up poor because you just assume that he was came from a good family, you know, had gone to Oxford or Cambridge, particularly at this moment in time now where we're so obsessed with privilege, gender, all these, well, you know, sexuality, all these things. To find this guy who was born, you know, at the turn of the 20th century, who never had an education. I mean, he left school when he was nine mm. to go and work as a child actor. And it is entirely self-invented. Is I think, a, a great inspiration to people now because, you know, there's so much concern with all those things and, you know, where one's born, that this is a guy who just decided to take it all on. And I think then, especially, you know, as you say, he would have been looked down upon. He would have been looked down upon because he was gay, you know, mm. which was obviously illegal at the time. And, you know, and class was a fixed thing in the 1920s when he was, you know, first going to work. So I think that it was a huge deal. And, you know, I think he was very keen to make his way up the social ladder. Was he upfront about that, though? The social ladder, I think that he was he was very ambitious and he did his best to hide it. And I think part of that ambition was social ambition. And, you know, I think that he went out of his way to make people like him. I mean, he was obviously a super charming guy. And, you know, everyone who met him says he won them over immediately. So I think that he he used his charm and his wit to ingratiate himself with people. He was very proud, for example, of his relationship with the royal family. It was a cause of some bitterness to him 
for quite a long time that he had to wait until he was 70 before he got a knighthood. Yeah, I loved all the bit about the Queen Mother coming to visit him in Jamaica. I mean, who was, by all accounts, quite not a snob, but, you know, mingled with the only the upper class. No, he, I mean, he and the Queen Mother obviously were great chums. I mean, yeah. and, and uh, you know, they spent a, uh, a lot of time hanging out together. And, and, and I think that he obviously adored her. And I think she was, you know, she took time out to go halfway across the island to visit him. It's a long journey now to his house, you know, from yeah, the airport, exactly. so it would have been then. And then he greeted her with beef bouillon mixed with vodka. I mean, that to me, first of all, bone broth <laughs> very ahead of its time. And second of all, gross. <laughs> we will not be serving that at dinner. But apparently the Queen Mother had a, was, you know, handy with a, with, with a glass or two and loved to have yeah, a she, I think she definitely, she definitely loved a glass or two. I mean, bull shots are very, if they're mi- mixed well, they're delicious drinks. You've tasted this? Yeah, yeah. It's a. I mean, it's a. I have friends who pride themselves on their bullshots. It's a sort of its version of a Bloody Mary. Gosh, probably quite good. My tender sensibilities are shocked. You should try. <laughs> okay. Well, it sort of sounds like his life is the American dream, but in Britain, and in a place where the American dream was not something that people thought was possible. But was the world of entertainment almost neutral territory in the class wars? And you know, is it? Does it have to do with the fact that in show business, well, he says in one of his plays, it's all a question of masks, really. I think it's in Design for Living. And Barnaby, you've been in show business a long time. Do you agree with that? Is it all a question of masks? Well, I think he was referring to life being question of masks. I mean, show business, of course, is a question of masks. That's how we all get through the day. I think that in, certainly for him, then he was always wearing a mask. He was wearing a mask because he was gay. I think he was wearing a mask because he had enormous insecurities around his lack of education. Mm. And I think he had enormous insecurities around his his sense of social belonging. And I think those are things that he carried throughout his life. And he did a fantastic job of masking them. But I think that uh, till, you know, till the, pretty much till the day he died, he always felt like an outsider. I recently listened to the amazing BBC audio productions of some of his most famous plays. And I will link to that in the show notes because it's something I highly recommend doing. But one thing that surprised me was his interpretation of femininity. And Monica and I just did a dramatic reading from Hay Fever. And before you got here. In the intro to this episode, including the bit where the mother and daughter are having a conversation about what it is to be feminine. And I can't help but notice that he seems to be the type of person who views women as deserving equal rights, um, which was surely not a popular view in his days. And what leads me to that interpretation is that his characters who embrace the gender norms of the time, like, you know, casual misogyny and soft, submissive, ladylike, you know, sunburns or vulgar type of beliefs are portrayed as being a bit ridiculous. And his best characters who are female are the strong-willed ones who sit in the driver's seats of their own lives and, you know, refuse to bow to conventions. So I plan to ask him, you know, what he thinks of feminism as we know today. And and uh, I want to hear all about his views on women. And I was wondering if did this come up while you were making the film? Did this occur to you, Barnaby? Or? Yeah, I mean, I think women were a huge part of his life. His, you know, his mother was obviously the over the single overpowering influences in his life, both as his biggest supporter and his biggest critic. And, you know, I think they had a very robust relationship where they had huge rows, but were also passionately attached to one another. I think he was driven very much in terms of 
his ambition in terms of getting her out of the kitchen of that boarding house. You mm. know, so that was a big part of it. And he surrounded himself with women, you know, with women. Gladys Calthrop designed all his shows. You know, all the people he worked most closely with were women. And I think that, you know, Marlene Dietrich, you know, any number of his close personal friends. I think he felt much more comfortable in the, in the company of women than he did in the company, certainly of uh, heterosexual men. But, you know, I think he was nearly always mm. uh, in the company of women. He was the first to give, you know, people like Gladys the opportunity to work, you know, so that he was very comfortable with treating women in ways that were, mm. was quite unusual at the time. Barnaby, a personal question. What do you yourself love most about Noel's plays? And do you have a favourite or, or even his other works? I think that wit is slightly different from comedy and it's difficult to explain the two, but there is a kind of genius to his wit, which is a, which is a kind of particular art that still seems so fresh now. And I think that, I mean, Private Lives is an absolute work of genius, I think. As someone, I've spent a, a lot of my time, model of my life, uh, you know, went to America. I was working for Law Michaels. We were making big, dumb comedies like Wayne's World and Coneheads and Tommy Boy. And the review that we dreamed of was smart and funny, but at the same time, a celebration mm. of the silly and <laughs> coward, you know, completely encapsulates all those qualities in terms of aversion of comedy, which to me elevates it above the ordinary. And I think that it would be great to have dinner with him because, you know, everyone who ever spent any time with him said he was the funniest guy. Uh, Chris Blackwell, for example, who uh, knew him as a child growing up because his mother was great friends with Noel, said he was, every time he spent time with him, he was literally rolling on the floor because <laughs> Coward would just be so funny. You know, and that's to anyone who has spent time in the world of comedy, that is, you know, the most exciting thing in the world. Oh, well, this is getting me very excited for our imaginary dinner, which um, we've got to start planning. But, you know, you've spent so much time with him in the sense of making the documentary. Um, are there any mysteries that still remain for you, Barnaby? Is there anything you're dying to ask him at our dinner? Because he was so good at inventing himself, I'm not sure he has ever really given himself away in terms of, as it were, what was really going on, but, you know, beneath the mask. And I think that it would be fascinating to spend time with him just to see what that, because, you know, he was a real enigma in terms of his life. You know, he was, he could be, you know, the, the most supreme bitch, but he could also be a great friend. To look in his eyes and see what that was really, you know, what was really going on would, would just be amazing. One question we like to ask ourselves before someone like Noel Coward arrives is what would our opening line be? And for Noel Coward, it's particularly intimidating. What would you say right off the bat? Not to put you on the spot or anything. Well, <laughs> well come up with a really witty line <laughs> off the... Yeah, yeah, no yeah. pressure. I think that would be hard. I think one would want to get a drink in his hand as quickly okay. as possible. Yeah, we, we can mull that yeah. over as we, as we uh, discuss the, 
the finer points of setting and menu and fashion. But first, I guess we should also determine who else is coming because you and I have had a bit of an email conversation about whether, you know, this is sometimes it's just a tete-a-tete-a-tete. Other times we determine who else would amuse our guest of honor. So who else would you like to invite to this dinner, if anyone? Well, if we were if we were going to be um, historically accurate, I think that you know, he was great friends with Ian Fleming. They were they were neighbours, you know, in Jamaica. And, I mean, you can't imagine two people who are more different than Noel Coward and Ian Fleming. So it would be great to, you know, see them in the same room to see what, what that was like. They were great friends. They, they got on incredibly well. You know, if one was, again, if one was going to pursue the historical, then historically accurate, you know, he, inve- he discovered Laurence Olivier, he discovered John Gielgud, he discovered David Lean. I mean, these are all giants of the 20th century. So that if one could, I mean, to be in a room with that group of people would be pretty amazing. Not not to forget people mm. like Marlene Dietrich as well. Let's get them all in. If one was being a bit more abstract, I think to get him in the same room as Oscar Wilde would be... I wanted to ask you about Oscar Wilde because you've also adapted Oscar Wilde's work, Dorian Gray and The Importance of Being Earnest. And, you know, there are some obvious parallels that can be drawn, such as extreme wit and being gay at a time when it was illegal and extremely dangerous to be openly gay. So do you classify their work in your mind in the same folder or not? And how are they different to you? Well, I think that they are, I mean, they're, they're enormous, you know, similarities in terms of their style was different, but their their approach to wit mm. in the plays was very similar. They both, you know, they wrote very quickly. They uh, had enormous success when they were young. And I think that Oscar Wilde was a very important character. He was sort of Oscar Wilde's tragedy was something that terrified and sort of haunted Noel throughout his life. And I think that's one of the reasons why he was so circumspect about his sexuality. Because, you know, whereas Wilde was sort of overly confident about his, his, his place in society, you know, Noel was the opposite. And so I think that he was a character that very much influenced Coward. Although Coward was, you know, was always very clear that his style of wit was not, was much less about epigrams than it was about right. a turn of phrase. One followed the other very much in terms of a sort of a historical place in the theatrical world. Mm. One thing that I found strange while researching Noel Coward was that the internet, if you, on two cursory of Google, it seems as if he had been openly gay throughout his life. You know, that's sort of the first layer of Googling will reveal something along those lines, that he never hid his sexuality, which not hiding and being openly gay are two different things. And it seems to me that, no, he didn't necessarily, he didn't act as if he were someone different in terms of his sexuality. Like he had partners who were male and he continued to live as he would, but he didn't he wasn't exactly saying, I am homosexual. You know, that would have been dangerous, right? Like that, he wasn't openly gay. I mean, it was literally illegal till 1967 to be gay. And so no one said, I am homosexual until probably the 90s, you know. So I think it's impossible for us now in the world that we live in to comprehend what it was like then. I think that within, as it were, theatrical circles, which obviously were gay, I think it... Right it was understood. You know, Coward spent, I mean, he didn't, I don't know how actively involved he was in 
promoting himself as a sex symbol, but he was perfectly happy to allow others for him to become a sex symbol. So he was in the 20s and 30s, he was very much sought after. Journalists were constantly speculating who he was going to get married to and, you know, all those things. He was he was very happy to mm-hmm. play up that smokescreen. But he did eventually write a play about a homosexual relationship, and I'm not talking about design for living, but that took many years. Towards the end, yeah. 1966. So he was he was then 66 years old. So that was that was the first time he ever addressed it. And he never actually admitted out, you know, to being gay. But he obviously, obviously, by then, it was clear that that's, that's what he was. And he did actually get his knighthood sort of three years after that, didn't he? So by that point, the British had got with the program a little more and it was more of an acceptable thing to be or not. Was it like, was the play shocking at that time? Or? Well, I mean, the you know, John Gilgood obviously got his knighthood, you know, years before. So I the the Coward always had a, had a feeling that Churchill yes. didn't like him because he was gay. And, you know, there are many theories as to why he wasn't given a knighthood. I mean, why he had to wait as long as he did. Part of it was in the Second World War when he was a spy. He got into this rather peculiar situation where uh, he was sent to America to find out what people were thinking and also in- encourage the Americans to join the war. So he was traveling all over America. He was using his own money to do this. And it turned out it was illegal to spend money abroad when you were British during the war. So that when he came back to England, he was arrested and taken to court for spending money in America. And obviously he couldn't say, well, I was doing it for the British government. And the British government at no point could have like secretly stepped in and... Well, he he ended up, you know... the fine he got was like twenty pounds or something. So it was. But the reputational damage. But the reputational damage in the press was huge. It was one of the. And then the other thing that happened in his life, obviously, was in the um, late fifties. He, when tax rates in England were, you know, sort of the top rate of tax was like ninety percent. He moved to Jamaica, and again, he got a terrible bashing in the press for leaving England. And so, throughout his life, there were these moments where. Despite his best efforts to the contrary, he was he was vilified in the press. And that would have had its effect on the, the sort of the, the establishment. 90%. Can you imagine the exodus that that would create? Wasn't it the 75% threshold that was causing a huge exodus from France? Yeah. I mean, the, the Rolling Stones famously, you know, they, they became tax exiles in the 60s for the same reason. They had all those hits. They discovered they didn't have any money because they were paying all this tax. Emma, true or false, one of the best things about parties, including imaginary ones, is playing dress up. True, true. True or false, our current clothing habits are one of the biggest contributors to climate change. Miserably true also. Which brings me back to our season three sponsor, Cezanne. Not only are their clothes so timelessly chic that you'll want to wear them over and over for decades, possibly centuries to come, but they are made well, both from a quality and from an environmental standpoint. Cezanne is a certified B Corp that sources organic textiles, ships in boxes that are either 100% recycled or sourced from sustainably managed forests, powers all of its stores with renewable energy, and has managed to reduce the carbon footprint of one garment by 17.2% over the last year. Plus, the clothes are dreamy for a Tuesday morning or for dinner with your dream guest. 
Visit Cezanne.com to stop browsing. All of this leads me to ask, should we have this dinner party in Jamaica? I know that you are both very familiar with the island and I envy you. I've never actually been. Not for lack of invitations. Thank you, Emma Knight. <laughs> Your time But will I haven't come. made it over there yet. <laughs> um, and I feel like this could be a good opportunity to be shown the island by the the very best, all the best in the same room. As always, we're on the same wavelength and not even in the same room. I think we should have an outdoor dinner if the skies will accommodate. And so one of the interesting, Barnaby, you mentioned Firefly, the incredible Noel Coward house in Jamaica. That was his second house. So that was actually the house that he built to retreat from his other house where he ostensibly lived, Blue Harbor, and people would come visit him in droves. It wasn't just the Queen Mother. There were, you know, so very many people who came to be with him in Jamaica that he had to build another house to get away from his actual house. Isn't that right, Barnaby? Yes. So he first went to Jamaica in the 40s and rented Ian Fleming's house. And then he found this spot just down the coast uh, where he built Blue Harbour, which was a house right on the water. But And Jamaica at that time, this, this is the early 50s, was really taking off. And so everyone came to visit. And I think it was one of those things like, be careful what you wish for, because barely a week went by when the house wasn't full of people. And Cowd was, you know, he was always very hardworking. And so whilst he was also, whilst he was a very sociable person, he was also quite a private person. So he realised that he needed, he bought this land, I think he bought it for £10, which was uh, 10 acres on this fantastic hilltop where he built a very modest one bedroom home. And so he would retire up there and, you know, wake up in the morning and write and then either go down to see his visitors down below or have them come up to Firefly. And I think Firefly would be a wonderful place to have a dinner party. It really would. And it's been kept it's been kept completely intact in part by Chris Blackwell, right? Or entirely by Chris Blackwell. Yes. It's had it's it took a bit of a battering in the last uh, monsoon, but it's basically it, it's been left as Emma says exactly as it was when you know on the day he died, and so it's kind of it's this rather amazing place. We were there on the last full moon of the twentieth century for a party that Chris Blackwell threw, and so being up there where the moon comes up from the uh, the sun goes down and the moon comes up, it would be a great setting for a dinner party. Bon appétit. I know Noel Coward was partial to English food from his time, like kidney pie and baked beans. And he even contributed to a fundraising cookbook for the actor's orphanage with which he was very active. His favorite dish apparently and the recipe, which was called Warsaw Concerto. And it's a kind of fried onions and baked eggs with breadcrumbs and butter and cheese on top and some vinegar. It seems seems great, but you know, not exactly what I want to serve at this dinner party. We might have, we might have that at 3 a.m. if we're still awake. Well, it just might be a bit hot. Yeah, no, that can be the kind of like middle of the night snack food um, if we're peckish again after after our swim under the full moon. But first, 
I think we need to have Jamaican food. So I'm picturing as an aperitif, of course, we'll have rum punch mixed up and ready for anyone who is ready for some Jamaican rum punch. But I also think we'd better be prepared with a dry martini because as uh, one of the characters in Blythe Spirit says, anyone can write books, but it takes an artist to make a dry martini that's dry enough. Um, so we'll need to practice. Yeah, no, no, definitely. You have to have the martinis and make sure the vodka is cold enough. And uh, and some, I was thinking some mini Jamaican patties as part of the aperitif. So some jerk chicken patties, some Callaloo ones, some oxtail ones, and then also some roasted and salted fresh coconut, because that's one of the best, I think, Jamaican snacks. And then as our starter, I was picturing pumpkin soup. I really love Jamaican pumpkin soup with some fresh cocoa bread. Mm-hmm. Um, stop me if you have additions, Barnaby. Well, I mean, Coward, uh, he took up cooking, I think, around the time that he moved to Jamaica and, and was a proud but not, I don't think, expert chef. He was particularly proud of his soups. Mm. When the Queen Mother was coming to lunch, Blanche Blackwell, I think, had arranged for someone to make a kind of, not a souffle, but a well, a, a frozen souffle-ish thing. I can't now remember what they're called. But unfortunately, uh, when the day came, the thing was so frozen oh, no. that it was, it was not going to melt in time for the uh, Queen Mother's arrival. So Coward quickly made one of his uh, ice soups, of which he was very proud, but apparently it was absolutely disgusting. So they sat there, having had their bull shots, eating this rather (laughs) disappointing uh, soup. So I suspect he would want to cook, but I think one would want to steer him towards the Mm, bar and mm -hmm. have have someone else step in. We would call upon his martini expertise and, you know, get him over there while we get a Jamaican chef's assistance, probably, with the pumpkin soup, with lots of thyme and a little bit of scotch bonnet. And then for for the main course, I was picturing an escovitch of red snapper, which is fried snapper that's served topped with this kind of hot, sweet and tangy mix of sautéed onions, julienne, carrots and peppers with scotch bonnet, thyme and Jamaican pimento, also known as allspice, most of which grows around the property and the snapper would be just from the water down there with a squeeze of lime. You're supposed to refrigerate it and serve it the next day so the veg gets a bit pickled and the fish kind of marinates in the flavors, which would be good. And if it were just us doing it ourselves, that would be good because it would free us up uh, not to have to be doing things at the last minute. It's very delicious. And then the sides, which are the whole point of dinner in the first place, would be, I was thinking, sautéed callaloo, some stuffed chocho, and then, of course, rice and peas. Any additions, Barnaby, or subtractions? And that, and that sounds that sounds delicious to me. I think that Noel would probably embrace that, but would be secretly disappointed that we weren't eating something that was a bit more mundane, like bangers and mash. Or, you know, he he really liked just school food. So, you know, shepherd's pie, bangers and mash, egg and chips. Egg and chips, Warsaw concerto. A true Englishman through and through. Maybe we should have a side of bangers and mash, <laughs> just in case. I do like how he says... At some, when he talks about his life in Jamaica, he says, I eat breadfruit and all kinds of strange fish, right? Or something like that. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. So he, <laughs> I mean, he does, he does like Jamaican food, but his happy place is terrible English food. I can definitely get behind some baked beans. And then for dessert, key lime pie, blue mountain coffee. Nice. Which is the best thing in the world. And then I think we should borrow the the Blackwell technique of uh, black and blue, which is Blue Mountain Coffee with Blackwell rum, uh, 
So the coffee is kind of made into like a granita and then you serve it with the Jamaican rum and it's like this iced rum coffee dessert that is pretty exceptional. Thoughts? Yeah, delicious. We may be falling over at this point. Blues, 20th century blues, they're getting me down. Who's escaped those weary 20th century blues? They're showing a lot of florals right now, so I was thinking I can florals do for spring. Groundbreaking. What are we gonna wear, Mon? As long as we look good, it's fine. One must always be impeccably dressed when falling over <laughs> drunk. It really lightens the blow. One of the things that is extraordinary, looking at you know the archive. I mean, I've looked at thousands of pictures of Noel Coward and Noel Coward with his friends, and there is not one where anyone doesn't look, is anything less than. Immaculate. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we would all have to up our game. Well, I mean, speaking for myself, I would have to. I can't speak for you, ladies. No, no, no. We've got to. We've got to plan this out. We can't just throw in any old thing, which one does sometimes do on holiday, you know. But this is like serious business. I mean, Noel Coward is kind of largely credited in the fashion world as defining English style, or at least menswear as we know it, and in its twentieth century identity, anyway. I mean, I sort of picture him with his famous polka dot dressing gown and long cigarette holder, which actually could be kind of a good look for one of us in the Jamaican heat. You know, you could just throw it over your bikini <laughs> and look very cool. Or over the the striped, the one piece for men is one of my favorite things ever in his like striped bathing costume. Right. <laughs> I want to wear that. Yes. Please. So wear the one piece and then if it gets a bit chillier, you can wear Perfect. the dressing gown over top. I love the dressing gown. And then I feel like, Emma, there's also room for one of us to wear a sort of, I mean, there is the option of wearing a Gertrude Lawrence style sort of pussy bow blouse or mo silk mm. monia dress. That's the kind of ladylike style of the time of his favorite leading ladies. It would be an occasion to wear a super chic silky dress. I was hoping you'd wear a ball gown, personally. I was hoping you'd wear an emerald ball gown with earrings and matching shoes, like in Design for Living, the thing that she wears. <laughs> I may well, it's a possibility. But I was also considering channeling Noel himself in his kind of dandy, very sophisticated tailoring style. I have this incredible white three-piece suit. So with the, the sort you of waistcoat and the jacket and the high-waisted white trouser. It was sort of cream and it's quite a light silky material and I thought it could go over a treat in Jamaica. Again, it'd be quite warm, but you could wear the, there's this style nowadays for ladies where you wear a waistcoat without anything underneath, Ooh. it's quite chic. And I thought that could be a nice tribute to him and then of course I would have a flower in my lapel. A hibiscus flower, perhaps. Absolutely. Hibiscus <laughs> would be lovely if we can get our hands on one. I think, in fact, I think we should all wear one of them. What those. about Barnaby? Well, Barnaby is obviously allowed to choose his own outfit, and <laughs> I don't know which um, which side of of Noel and his entourage he wants to be channeling. I mean, Barnaby's probably seen a lot more photos of Noel Coward than I have. What do you think? Which vibe are you going for? You're welcome to wear a one-piece <laughs> bathing suit. I, I probably wouldn't wear the bathing suit to dinner, but I I love a white suit a linen white suit or just an off-white suit that, you know, it has that sort of post-colonial feel. And, I mean, as you say, I mean, Coward did invent, really, the modern English style, particularly for men. And so uh, you'd, you definitely want to look your look your best. He had a way of doing it. it. The thing that is so amazing is that sort of effortlessness. So you carried off without ever 
feeling like you're you're trying or you've you've spent a moment thinking about what you're going to wear precisely and there's a whole sort of breed of Englishmen and not necessarily Brits who channel his style today you know I'm even thinking about I don't know if you've ever come across the artist Luke Edward Hall sort of very sharp but relaxed and sophisticated dandy-esque tribe of of very fashionable young men today who I think would probably cite Noel Coward as their like direct inspiration so the Noel legend lives on in the fashion world that's for sure and of course as I say you know Women wearing tailoring is all the rage today. And I think a lot of women would count him as a style icon and inspiration as well. Yeah, and the, uh, you mentioned Molyneux, and I think that, you know, who dressed a lot of his leading ladies. And I think that, you know, he he definitely defined a lot of what became style in the 30s and 40s. Absolutely. I love that style. And it's actually coming back a little bit in the recent collections, as in the ones we just saw. So it'll be autumn, winter. There was a lot of sort of like long gloves and that kind of studied elegance. It's been a sort of post-COVID Y2K party wear revival in the fashion world in the past couple of seasons, which has its charms. But there's something a little bit more hearkening back to the 30s and 40s that's coming back. So we'll be right on trend. And do you think that's good? Because I I, go, I walked down uh, German Street the other day in Savile Row and there are all these, you know, these English tailors who were, who were you know, obviously through the 20th century and through the early part of the century were always busy. Do you think people are going to go back to those kind of looks? Do you think men are going to start dressing again in suits and in jackets? Well, I should first of all say I hope so because I think that there is such an importance of appreciation of that kind of craft that's like really passed down through generations rather than the fast fashion alternatives. I actually do. As I say, I think we've had a sort of weird moment post-pandemic in the fashion world, both in menswear and in womenswear. And it takes a moment. And and, and all of this talk about the new roaring 20s, like I'm behind it. I love a party as much as anyone. But it, it takes a moment when something so drastic happens in the world because fashion is often a direct reaction to what's going on in the greater world for things to calm down a little bit. But I actually think that as we look at what's going on with our planet and the extent to which fashion is a, is a real uh, scary polluter, I think people are starting to realize that investment pieces, as we refer to them, are the key. And you know, pieces that are like worth the dry cleaning bill and will stand the test of time. And I think that's true of menswear as well. In fact, I think it's even more true of menswear. And in London, when you have Savile Row available to you, you know, it's definitely worth saving up for. I was I was inspired by having look, looked at Noel Coward for a year. I went out and bought two suits. Amazing. I also think of the opening scene of Tar. Good on you. You know, I don't know if you guys have seen that film, but the opening scene in which you just, her impeccable... Uh, Lydia Tarr is played by Kate Blanchett. Yeah, and yeah. Her in- yeah, yeah. impeccable suits are being sewn, you know, cut and sewn in those first scenes. And you just see the perfectionism uh, that goes into that type of dressing. I never feel better as a woman than when I'm wearing a well-cut suit, I have to say. It's just so agreeable. And you feel like you can move around. But it's, I think it's really chic. I don't know. What do you think? Do you ever wear suits, Emma? Well, you've given me an amazing suit and I do have a a couple, but I have long promised myself that one day I will go to German Street and get myself like a really, I've never had a suit made for me and it's still, it's on my list. Thanks. You can do it for your book launch. (laughs) Okay. So um, (laughs) the thing that I wanted to ask Barnaby, this is a little bit cheeky, but I've mentioned it in emails. 
one person who we would really love to have at this table, and it definitely doesn't work chronologically, um, is your late friend Adrian Gill. And we think that he could keep pace with Noel with his sense of humor. Uh, he had us rolling on the floor more than once, reading his columns in the Times when we were at Edinburgh, Monica. And we bought the Times for him every single Sunday, even when we hadn't a penny to our names. And then we bought all his books. Yes, that is true. <laughs> Adrian was a very dapper dresser and he loved a tailored suit. I mean, it was difficult to get him off Savile Row. <laughs> he would absolutely be able to go mano a mano with Noel, I think he was, uh, I mean, they're in many ways very similar because they're very witty, but also quite caustic. But I think deep down, both, you know, absolute uh, sweethearts and softies. And I think that they would be, um, certainly Adrian in his uh, drinking days would have been able to go uh, drink for drink with Noel. It, It would be great to see them in the same room together. Maybe they're in the same room together now. Oh, maybe they are. It certainly raises the stakes. Yes, it does raise the stakes for the cooking, Emma. No, no pressure. Adrian Gill went by the pen name A.A. Gill. I don't know if that counts as a pen name, his initials, but look up A.A. Gill. We'll link to his work in the show notes. But I have to read a little bit from his review of Lamy Louis which is a prison institution that lots of people think is really wonderful. <laughs> and which he des- he describes the interior as colonic, um, but he's just getting started at that point. Nothing I have ever eaten or heard of being eaten here prepared me for the arrival of the veal kidneys en brochette. Somehow the heat had welded them together into a gray, separating <laughs> renal brick. It could be the result of an accident involving rat babies in a nuclear reactor. They don't <laughs> taste as nice as they sound. As an afterthought, or perhaps as an apology, the waiter brings a funeral pyre of French fries. They taste of seared and overused cooking oil. And then a green salad of frisée <sighs> and mash, two leaves that rarely share a bowl due to their irreconcilable differences. They have been doused in vinegar that may have been recycled from the gherkin bottle. Dessert is four balls of gray ice cream and something that had once been chocolate. Didn't he dictate all of his articles? <laughs> He's great. And Adrian was dis- massively dyslexic. He dictated, so you imagine just that's, so in that sense, he's very, you know, uh, coward-esque in his ability just to come up with that stuff. That's not, you know, those aren't measured words that he's, he's written and rewritten. Those, that stuff that just comes out, streaming out of his mouth. Out of his mouth. Did you ever see him doing that in person? I've always wondered about it. Just like, who took down the notes? I, 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 mean, I, never saw, I never saw him, you know, at work, as it were. But he was, um, you know, you got him going on a subject and he would, he would be like, and, and actually, one of the th- things that was fascinating with Noel was he would write his, in longhand, he would write his plays and he's got all his notebooks and they're just, there are very few changes. He just, you know, and it was clearly had the same thing, which he just, you know, it was just a voice in his head that it was, uh, that would just come out of him. And I think that it's... uh, Extraordinary. The idea that Private Lives was written in one night. No, it wasn't, it was, no, he came up with it one night. It was, he he, he took three or four days over. I mean, it it was not, (laughs) it was not ages, yeah. (laughs) Adrian, I knew Adrian because, I mean, his father went to Edinburgh University with my mother. We were obviously at Edinburgh at the wrong time. We missed uh, some great people. (laughs) There were some okay people with us. (laughs) Thanks for adding that in, Mon. (laughs) Well, I feel, I didn't want Marcus Mumford to feel bad about himself. 
Well, speaking of Marcus Mumford, what shall we listen to? Because that's, you know, do we keep it quiet and hope that he plays the piano for us? Or do we have Cole Porter's playing? Or, you know, how do we score this? Uh, Cole Porter's a great friend of his, but he was also, and maybe he should be there, but he was, I think, very nervous of Cole thought about his music. And so uh, when when Cowd played Vegas and Cole Porter came, Cowd was very, very anxious that Cole would approve. And did he? And he did, yeah. Every evening with Noel Cowd ended with him playing the piano. So it would no doubt be a musical, you know, there were a musical time would be had. I don't know how many of the others would be able to contribute, but maybe if Cole came along, then we would be in fine shape. Hmm. So should we have the the kind of soundscape of crickets and the water and all the Jamaican sounds and kind of leave it at that and hope that he'll start playing? Or do you think we should have some music in the background? Well, to go back to that, that the, uh, the, the evening I was t- telling you about of Firefly, at the end of the millennium, Ernest Wranglin, who was the uh, was a guitarist, a J- Jamaican guitarist, who was the first person that Chris Blackwell ever signed played that night and it was fantastic. So I might, I'd been, I'd be tempted to sign up Ernest uh, Wrangler and get him down to play some, he, he played a kind of jazzy reggae in the, 50, in the, in the early 60s, it was called Mento, which, so a bit of Mento pre-Noel and Cole hitting the uh, keyboards, I think would go down very well. I love that. Okay, quickly before he arrives, last thing, any subjects that we need to avoid? Well, I mean, Noel could be curiously reactionary about certain subjects. He, you know, as he got older, he got very reactionary about the sort of the, the socialist Britain. So I would probably avoid politics. I would keep him, keep him on his showbiz stories as much as possible. Mm. Okay. Works for me. All right. I guess we'd better go put on our suits, bathing and otherwise. <laughs> we don't want a Queen Mother situation. <laughs> Get in the kitchen. Don't let the frozen thing be too frozen. <laughs> exactly. All right. Thank you so much, Barnaby. Thanks for joining us. It was fun. Thank you. Well, it's time for our Jamaican farewell. Thank you to Barnaby for joining us and to our producers, Matt Bentley Viney and Joel Grove. And thank you for listening. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and send us an email at fanfarefanmail at gmail.com. See you next time. Bye. That's all.